lives, heal broken hearts, and save man's soul. So here's our prayer. Lord Jesus, today, would you speak to me? In Jesus' name, amen. Give a high five or pound your neighbor over there. And if you saw the sports page this morning, I, I noticed that uh, uh, Coach Graham is on his, in his office with over his shoulder looking out at the uh, uh, TU field, and uh, it, it looks like a very impressive building. Uh, he wouldn't be able to enjoy that if it wasn't Brad Caleb. I just want you to know that. He couldn't enjoy anything. <clears throat> Never mind. John Franklin wrote a book entitled, The Place and the Place Was Shaken. Interesting title, deals with prayer, and if you will allow me to, as I begin this morning, a second message in our series, When the Church Prays, I want to talk about the critical mass that unleashes God's will. We're going to be looking in Revelation chapter 8, so if you want to get your Bibles ready, go to Revelation chapter 8. We're going to jump a couple spots in Revelation, but predominantly we're going to be in Revelation chapter 8, we're going to be in verses 1 through 5, just a few moments. And by the way, aren't these microphones working wonderful? Hallelujah. (laughs) It's nice to have one not stuck right here in my face. I I just love it. Thank you for your uh, uh, commitment to make that happen. But John Franklin recalls a time from this book. I'm lifting a little bit from this book, and it, it it just so makes the point today. He recounts a time in June of 1990 when he joined about 250 people to participate in a two-week evangelistic crusade in Mombasa, Kenya, which at that time had around a million people. They were divided into teams of three, each team going hut to hut, house to house, presenting the gospel of Christ. John Franklin was in awe, he says. Let me quote from his book. A few times in my life I have been in a service of prayer or prayer meeting where the obvious presence of God could be felt, but never before in a whole city. Wherever we walked, the presence of the Lord tangibly permeated the land, so much so that often people were saved by the dozens. He goes on to tell one example. His team of three was walking down a dirt road that led to the next village. And up ahead were three Kenyan men seated on a stool, or seated on stools by the roadside. As we approached, Franklin said, one of them arose, walked briskly toward us, and greeted us in English. Excuse me, are you from America, he asked. And we said, yes. Are you one of the ones who has come here to tell us the word of God? Yes, was the answer. We've heard that you've come and we've heard of Jesus and His great power. Tell me, how does one become His follower? John Franklin and his friends uh, were told by this gentleman that his friends wanted to know. And so Franklin explained the plan of salvation without a trace of hesitation. This man immediately said and, and, and to them, let's pray. So John Franklin thought, as you or I would think, hey, that was way too easy. He must really not understand. So John repeated again the message of the Gospel. But the man interrupted him and he said, I understood the first time. Let's pray. 
And so the, that story of people coming to them to be saved happened over and over, John Franklin says. In all, 30,000 people responded to the Gospel in 14 days' time. Now, as a backstory to that story, and it speaks more to the purpose of what I want to say this morning, there was three months prior to John Franklin arriving in Kenya that several churches in Mombasa began fervently praying and concerted their days of prayer for evangelism. During the two weeks that they were there in crusade, a different church prayed all night, each night. John Franklin joined one of the all-night prayer meetings praying until 7 a.m. when he went to bed. He woke up four hours later and felt the presence of God in his hotel room so strongly that he did not rise. He just simply slid out of the sheets to his knees in prayer. That day following that prayer meeting, John, and John said that every single adult that they witnessed to trusted Christ. No one rejected the Gospel. John Franklin and the others in that crusade made a big discovery and that was that, that revival, the revival that came in that city happened because of the prayer meetings of God's people. Is that not a tremendous story? What might happen in the city of Jinx if we as a church, in concert of prayer, began to pray for the lost? What might happen? What could happen? In Revelation 8, I want to fire you up a little bit about the possibility. In Revelation 8, there's an astonishing passage of Scripture. Hurls us closer to the end days. John, the writer of Revelation, tells us of the things that must take place. And in the midst of earth-shattering events, there is an amazing pause in heaven. And there's a lesson about prayer connected to that pause. If it wasn't in Scripture, I would have a hard time believing it. But as I've said, as I've studied this, God has really dealt with my heart about prayer. And how superficial my prayers have been. How superficial. How, how, lack, how I've been lacking in tapping the resource of power that God has awaiting all believers. Let's take a look at John chapter... 8 verses 1 through 5. When he opened the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven for about half an hour. And then I saw the seven angels who stand in the presence of God. Seven trumpets were given to them. Another angel with a gold incense burner came and stood at the altar. He was given a large amount of incense to offer with the prayers of all the saints. Now would you underline that in your, in your Bible in verse 3? With the prayers of all the saints on the gold altar in front of the throne. The smoke of the incense with the prayers of the saints went up in the presence of God from the angel's hand. Verse 5, the angel took the incense burner, filled it with fire from the altar, 
and hurled it to the earth. There were thunders, rumblings, lightnings, and an earthquake. There is an amazing connection between the prayers of the saints and the end of time. Amazing connection. The gathered prayers of God's people in this passage are portrayed as instruments that God uses to bring the world to its appointed end. But I want us to break that down. There are three major movements in these five verses that are descriptive when it leads us to the last days. Let's look at movement number one. The seven sealed scroll. Look again at verse one. It opens with a reference to the opening of that seventh seal when it says, When He opened the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven for about a half hour. Would you underline that phrase, silence in heaven for about half an hour? It's really important. It's really important. Highlight it, underline it. But really to understand that seventh seal, we've got to go back to chapter 5. So flip back in your Bible to keep your finger there at 8, but go back to 5. And we want to pick up at verse 1, chapter 5. Then I saw the right hand of the one seated on the throne in his hand, a scroll with writing on the inside and on the back, sealed with seven seals. Verse 2, I also saw a mighty angel proclaiming in a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? Verse 3, But no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or even, even to look at it. Verse 4, And I cried and cried because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or even to look in it. There is enormous significance to the contents of this scroll. Such so that no one in heaven, not the six-winged cherubim, that continually declare God's glory, not Gabriel, not Michael, the archangel Michael, none of them were strong enough or rightly qualified to open that scroll. But that thing in the right hand of God that caused the high and the holy in heaven to shrink back when it came time to serve, John knew the contents of that scroll. We're told in chapter 4 that John had been brought up into heaven in the Spirit and promised that he would see what must take place after this. After the church age is over. John had the unparalleled opportunity to see how it will all end. And how those final years of world history will play out. When all that God had promised will come to be. So that scroll sealed seven times to ensure secrecy was the unfolding of human history. Its opening would enact the final chapter for this world and those who live in it. But when the call went out, who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? No one, no one stepped forward. God has ordained that someone other than Himself direct the end of the days. Still in chapter 5, verse 3 suggests that this invitation extended to every known realm of existence. 
seeking anyone who could take up that great scroll. No one stepped forward. So it says that John began to weep loudly, thinking that his hope of seeing the end of history would be denied. But what John doesn't understand is that that delay was intentional. Now look at verse 5. We're still in chapter 5. Look at verse 5. One of the elders around the throne informs him that crying is really not the right reaction. The elder says, stop crying. Look, the Lamb from the tribe of Judah, the root of David, which you underline in your Bible highlight, has been victorious. Why is that important? Has been means it's already happened. You and I need not fret. You and I need not worry. Because the lion from the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has been victorious so that he may open the scroll and its seven seals. You see, this elder was suggesting to John that there was a deliberate and a calculated pause that established without a shadow of doubt who would be able to open that scroll. I believe Jesus begins to walk to the throne to take the scroll from the Father's hand. And the Bible says that the 24 elders that surrounded that throne, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints, fall down before Him. Still in chapter 5, look at verse 9. And they sang a new song. You are worthy to take the scroll and open its seals because you were slaughtered and you redeemed for God by your blood from every tribe and language and people and nation. You made them a kingdom and priests to our God and they will reign on the earth. Jesus alone has the right to open the seals. The royal right to open those seals of history and oversee the final unfolding because Jesus died and in dying He ransomed a great multitude of saints from all the nations. Please don't miss this, that the cross is the key to history. Somewhere on your outline, write that down. The cross is the key to history. What happened at the cross unlocks the future revelation of God's plan. God is willing to give the judgment of history only into the hands of one who came to save. Chapter 6 records what happens as Jesus cracks open the seals of the scroll of destiny one by one. The action of Christ in heaven bring blows against the earth, the likes of which have never been seen. Each open seal creates global disaster. One quarter of the earth's population perishes under the judgment of God. Chapter 6, verse 8. And with each successive seal there's broken, uh, that's broken by Christ in heaven, humanity's brought one, one step closer to the end of time. Which leads us to movement number two, found in the eighth chapter. And that is this silence in heaven. Let's go back to verse 1, chapter 8 now. The Lamb, Jesus, breaks that last remaining closure on the scroll. And once the scroll is open, the wheels of God's judgment speed up, preparing the way for the second coming of Christ to earth and to the end, and for the end of all time. But before that occurs, something strange takes place. He opens the seventh seal, and there was silence in heaven for about half an hour. 
Now, some people believe that this is a proof text, Romans, I mean, Revelation 8 in verse 1, a proof text that women will not be in heaven. Because it says there was silence for about half an hour. Some of you were starting to wane on me. I had to bring some humor in here to get you woke up. But this silence is so important. Stay with me. The next sound that we hear is in verse 5. Silence, verse 1. Verse 5, we hear sound. And the sound we hear is when the angel of God takes the fire of the altar and throws it to the earth. And how does your Bible describe it? With thunders, rumblings, lightnings, and an earthquake. Now that's some pretty heavy duty stuff. You know when a thunderstorm rolls through, sky gets black, wind blows and you hear the lightning, and you see the, thun- the thunder, you see the lightning, I'm telling you, it gets you a little bit shaky, doesn't it? Unless you live in the south, and grew up down in the south, it ain't no big deal. My grandmother used to sit on the front porch and watch the tornadoes. I do that. I go right out in the front yard and watch for tornadoes. My family thinks I'm nuts. So we had a thunderstorm a few weeks ago. <laughs> Fancy that. And what does Corey do? Walks right outside, starts looking around. There's lightning, there's thunder going on everywhere. He's out there just looking around, just checking it out. I wonder where he learned that. I wonder where he learned that. Now, I don't go stand out there in lightning. But I'll go stand out there and watch for a, a tornado. No big deal. Especially if it's coming right at you. It's no big deal, right? Oh, we're goofy like that in the South. But this, when it happens, it gets your attention, doesn't it? When it's real close, you ever been just sitting there and it's just kind of quiet and all of a sudden that clap of thunder, kaboom! I mean, you go, whoa, I believe that was right outside. And sure enough, you go outside and your tree's splitting down to the ground. I mean, that's, it's, it really gets your attention. Well, can you imagine the thunders and rumblings and lightnings and earthquakes that was felt? See, my sense is from this passage is that the those in heaven, the hosts of heaven, were in, in awe. They were dumbstruck at what was happening at the opening of that scroll. They were seeing the raw, supreme power of God as it was released in ways that the world has never seen before. With all the fury and the powers of Katrina and you name it, it won't compare to what this describes in Revelation 8 and verse 5. But something more is happening in this moment. Jesus deliberately pauses to show John and us the power of gathered prayers. The power of gathered prayers. Does praying together truly accelerate the fulfillment of God's purposes? Well, the answer is astonishing. Leon Morris in his commentary on this passage says this, The saints of God appear insignificant to men at large, but in the sight of God they matter. Even great cosmic cataclysms are are held back on their account. And the praises of the angels give way to silence so that the saints may be heard. Isn't that a powerful statement? In this silence, after opening the seventh seal, we have a dramatic presentation of the importance of the prayers of the saints. 
before the scrolls open, God wants to make clear to John and to us that the unfolding of the end of the world will happen by the prayers of the saints. Did you underline that in your passage? In Revelation 8? Because it brings us to the final movement, movement 3. And that is the supplication of the saints. Look at verse 3. Another angel with a gold incense burner came and stood at the altar. He was given a large amount of incense to offer with the prayers of all the saints. Did you underline that? Did you highlight that? On the gold altar in front of the throne. It is the prayers of all the saints have been piling up on that altar. You ever wonder where your prayers go? They go to this altar. They're piling up on this altar. They go before this altar, which is before His throne. And you might be thinking, now come on, man. All the prayers of all the all of history are piled up in front of His throne on this altar. <coughs> How could that possibly happen? Well, if humankind can create a microchip to hold millions and millions of bits of information, I think God can handle the prayers of the saints over the years, don't you? God can do it. And He has done it. And the Scripture reveals that to us. In fact, in verse 4, it's, it, these prayers are a fragrant aroma to God. They're fragrance His throne. In verse 5, it says, The angel took the incense burner, filled it with the fire from the altar, and hurled it to the earth. Thunders, rumblings, lightnings, and earthquake. Cataclysmic reactions to God's sending this thunder and loud rumblings and flashes of lightning and earthquakes. And they simply represent the actions of God from heaven on the world as this scroll, this final scroll is opened. Seal is opened on this scroll. But please, please don't miss how our prayers play out in this final act of God. Now, what does all of that mean to you and to me? Well, let me make just a few observations. Revelation 8 shows us that the prayers of the saints are the instrument that God uses to usher in the end of the world. Our prayers change history. Do you believe it? You need to believe it. Our prayers can change history. Our prayers can change history in more ways than we could ever recognize. It's that faithful prayer of that grandmother on her knees every night who's kept you safe over the years. Or that mother who's prayed and prayed and prayed. My aunt prayed for my brother and myself that we would somehow find the Lord and not only find the Lord, but find Him in a deep way. And out of five boys that were born into the Phillips family, dad who's not a Christian, dad who never went to church, dad dropped us off at church, said it was good for the wife and the children to go, but not for me, blah, blah, blah. Well, I've heard that many times. But this aunt prayed, and she still stands in amazement to this day that two of us are in the ministry full time and gave our life to it. 
You see, it's the prayers of people that make a difference. And the concerted, concerted prayer of God's people can make all the difference in the world. Not one God-exalting prayer has ever been in vain. Has ever been in vain. I've been praying all week long that God will touch certain ones of these kids on specifically on this trip. And I've been praying for them. I've been praying and pouring out my heart to God that He would touch them. And they would come back at the end of this trip so profoundly changed. Because you see, I've seen it happen. I will never forget teaching at Nazarene University down in Oklahoma City when CIY years ago was held there. I never will forget teaching my, my uh, group, my class that I had assigned to me about why should I go to Bible college? That was the title of it. I thought, oh, this will be great. This will be a snoozer and I'll get three or four kids to come. Plus, I didn't get a classroom. The only place that they had to put me was at this landing of a stairwell in, in one of the buildings. So I had a, had, that's where I stood. I stood in the corner and they sat on the stairs going down and up and, and it was kind of fun to teach them in that setting. But I never will forget Jeff Brown. Jeff Brown was enrolled already to UCO in Edmond. He'd already paid his fees. He'd already, he was ready to go because this was in August. And after my class, God took what was said. It wasn't me. It was what was said. And God took it into His heart that was fertile and open. And Jeff Brown decided that Bible college is where he really needed to go. So Jeff Brown served in youth ministry for a number of years right here in our area. And I've talked to him over the years and, and he told me, Gosh, this had to be, this had to be, uh, I don't know, 28 years ago, 25 years ago. But he's told me over and over and over. He's an elder now at a, at a local church here in our area. But he told me, he said, it was that class that so profoundly changed him. And I can't even remember what I told him. I can't even remember what I taught in that class. But I do remember this, that God took a small class in an unorthodox area to make a difference in one person's life. So, could prayer do that? You bet it can. Can prayer change you? You bet it can. No prayer is pointless. All our prayers accumulate at God's throne in heaven until they reach that proper proportion and then He acts in accordance with His will to bless or to judge or to heal or to save. Or any number of perfect acts that He might perform. Prayer is seen on two levels. Number one, it's seen on an individual level. If you've ever wondered what happens to your prayers, the answer is millions upon millions of prayers over the last 2,000 years are at God's feet. And as the saints have cried out again and again, Thy kingdom come, Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven, they're there. It's seen on a second level, and, it's, and that's a corporate level. There is a critical mass that comes when God's people combine their prayers together before God. And the flame has been growing brighter and brighter and more and more pleasing in the presence of God. And the time will come when God will command His holy angel to take His mighty censer, fill it with fire from the altar where the prayers burn before the Lord, pour it out on the world to bring all God's great and holy purposes to completion. It means that the consummation of history will be owing to the supplication of the saints. Thomas Torrance, 
about this passage in 8 verse 5 writes this, The fire comes from the very altar on which the prayers of the saints have been offered as the worship team comes to help me close. This truly means that the prayers of God's people play a necessary part in ushering in the judgments of God. What are the real master powers behind the world and what are the deeper secrets of our destiny? Here is the astonishing answer. Thomas Torrance says, the prayers of the saints in the fire of God. That means that more potent, more powerful than all the dark and mighty powers let loose in the world, more powerful than anything else, is the power of prayer set ablaze by the fire of God and cast upon the earth. Wow. The bottom line about us and about prayer is number one, we can't pray enough. Our prayers are stored up on the altar of God and, and, and made the power for great divine interventions in history. Jesus made it plain in Luke 18.1 when He said we ought to always pray and not lose heart. <coughs> so if you're discouraged, if you're disappointed, you need to pray. Go to God in prayer. Let God know how you feel. It's okay. If you're mad, tell Him. If you're upset, tell Him. If you're angry, tell Him. It's okay. He can handle it. Secondly, prayer in concert is uniquely appointed by God in the accomplishing of His mighty, mighty works. And I hope that you have seen this morning from this passage in Revelation chapter 8 that God uses the prayers of His people to do great and mighty things. And they will. They will. The accumulated prayers will usher in the end of all time. Lord, we just ask You this morning to move in the lives of Your people here. God, we need, we need a concert of prayer in this church. We need people to step into a, a position to where they will see the power of prayer. And Father, from seeing that power, then we will step back in awe of what You're doing. God, You've heard my prayers this week about these young people and this trip. And there's certain ones of them that I am just bringing before Your throne. Because God, they need to be touched in a very special way for You. And God, I know You can do it. I've watched You over the years in the lives, in my own children's lives. I've watched You use this conference to touch them. And so Father, I'm, I'm praying, earnestly praying, that they will come back so changed, so different, so on fire, that God, they will start leading their friends to Christ. They'll lead teachers to Christ. Because God, we need a revival to break out in this church. God, we need a fresh wind of Your Spirit to blow across this church. Father, we need to quit using excuses and talking negative, and we got to talk positive because we are blood-bought and we are at the foot of Your cross. God, it doesn't matter what obstacle we face because we have Your power. And so, Father, this morning, there may be somebody here that's never touched and tasted the gift of salvation. All You simply ask us to do is to respond in faith to a Jesus who came and died for them on the cross. All You simply ask us to do is to come and to say, I'm a sinner. 
And I stand in the need of forgiveness. And make that confession of faith. And Father, you're ready to move into their life. Sealing that decision in the waters of baptism. So they die the old life and rise to walk in the new life. And Father, that doesn't guarantee there'll be no problems. In fact, I think the problems that get accentuated at times when we come to You. Why? <clears throat> because Satan knows he's losing us. And so he's going to work harder to keep us. So Father, I just pray this morning that if there's somebody in this room that needs a special touch from You, would You let them acknowledge that? And it takes a lot of courage to do that, Father. But would You ask them today and move in them today? In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. If you have a decision, would you make it as we stand and sing together?